I wonder as we come to Genesis 32 and this well-known story in the life of Jacob, I I wonder if you and I had time to sit and talk over coffee what you would, how you would answer this question. What, what is God up to in your life? What is God up to in your life? What's he been up to? And not just in the last few days or weeks or months, but over, say, 20 years. We're going to look at a 20-year span of Jacob's life today. What's, what's God been up to in the last decade or two in your life? And then I would wonder, how would, how would you describe that. This morning we're going to see that God is describing what he's been up to in Jacob's life as a wrestling match. I wonder if that might be how you would describe what God's been up to in yours. And then wouldn't you like to know exactly what he was doing over these years in your life? Um, Many times when we come across hard things in our lives, People will ask, what is God doing? And I have to honestly say as a pastor, I'm not not exactly sure all that he's doing. Uh, John Piper has been known to say, God is doing 10,000 things in your life at once. And you may be aware of three of them. And sometimes you're aware of none of them. But in this story, God shows us at least one thing he's up to. In your life. And so let's, it may be more than one, but let's look at that this morning. Jacob's story is going to give us a glimpse into something that God is doing in the life of his people. So if you would stand with me. (laughs) Now, As we come to this particular story, this is at the end of 20 years. Uh, The last time we were in Jacob's story, Eric ably preached about the dream he had about the stairway to heaven and the angels going up and down and talking about how God is present and promised to be present in the life of Jacob as he was on his way to his father's home country to find a wife. Um, And then... That was chapter 28 of Genesis, chapters 29 up to 32, tell the story of what happened when he was there, how he met Rachel. We'll get into a little bit of that. Uh, His dealings with uh, his father-in-law Laban, all that mess. And then his upcoming confrontation with Esau. And it's on his way back into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where he knows that Esau, his brother, who had promised to kill him, remember, 20 years earlier after he got cheated by his brother. He's on his way into the promised land, and he's been told, Esau is coming out to meet you, and he's bringing 400 men with him. Of course, if you're Jacob, you're not imagining that, this is a, a, that they're coming out with flowers and balloons and banners, right? They're carrying other things, sharp things that can hurt you. So he's afraid, and at, at the point of what's gonna, what we're about to read, he has sent all of his wives and 
his servant wives and all of their children and all that he owns, he sent them across this Jabbok, this ford of the Jordan River, into the land ahead of him, and he's staying back for this night. And this is what happens that night. Verse 22, hear the word of the God who loves you and wants you to trust him. The same night, Jacob arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip, hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there you blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen, the, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Peniel means the face of God. The sun rose upon him as he passed, Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of his thigh. Then, you don't have to turn there, it's in your bulletin, probably be on the screen, but in Hosea chapter 12, there are a couple of verses that are kind of a commentary on this story. And the Lord is, this is years later, and the Lord is uh, indicting Israel and Judah for their disobedience to him. And this is what it said, the Lord says, or Hosea prophesied in chapter 12, verses 3 through 5. It's kind of commentary on this wrestling story. In the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, of, the, Lord the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. This is the word of the Lord. <coughs> Please be seated. Now, I'm just going to let you know that the cough has been particularly annoying lately and even this morning. So I'm going to, I'm going to get us through this as quickly as I can, okay? Let me pray for us. Father, um, we do ask for your help now. I ask for your help to speak. 
and I ask for your people's help to listen. Um, help us to see and hear your heart for us and to get a glimpse into some of the ways that you work with us in your relationship with us to, to draw us close to you and to keep us, um, to keep us close to your heart. We ask that we would see this now in the life of Jacob. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So since it's Father's Day, I'm, I'm excited. Some of you know that uh, we are gaining a new daughter on August 8th as our son Micah marries Samara. Um, and uh, yesterday, Samara posted on social media some pictures that were taking, taken of her and Micah showing off the ring, all these things. And this was the comment that she put with those pictures. My whole heart for my whole life. And Christine texted me. She said, why am I sobbing? <laughs> I said, because this is what we've prayed for. This is what we hope for, for our son. Um, she was saying about him, I'm going to give my whole heart to you for my whole life. Now, those of us who have been married for a while, we understand that she doesn't know what she's saying, does she? <laughs> I mean, she's saying the right thing, and that's what the covenant of marriage is all about. Both people saying, my whole heart for my whole life. But you don't know what your whole heart for your whole life means until you're in it. It's a huge risk. It's a statement of absolute trust. And isn't that what God wants to hear from us? Lord, my whole heart for my whole life is yours. And when we say that to God, well, we're not sure exactly what that means either. But after decades of walking with him, you find out what it means to tell him my whole heart for my whole life. And that's what Jacob is finding out in this 20-year stretch. As I said before, he, in Genesis 28, he's just had this incredible encounter with God in the dream and the angels going up and down this staircase between earth and heaven. And as Eric reminded us, that's God saying, I am in this place, um, and I am with you. And he promised him, I will be with you, and I will keep my promises to you and to your fathers. And so Jacob leaves that, and he's going on his way to find a wife in his father's homeland. And I imagine Jacob is, is leaving with confidence and in a sense of saying, okay, God, if, if you are this God and you are promising me these things, then my whole heart for my whole life, God, let's go. And he gets there, and at first things seem to go pretty well. I mean, he, in fact, it happens at a well. He comes upon a well and meets some guys there, asks, do they know his... Um, his uncle Laban, and he said, do we know him? Sure. Well, here comes his daughter Rachel with, uh, she's a shepherdess. Here she comes with some flocks to water them. 
here at the well. And um, as, uh, <laughs> as my Bible professor at Bryan College said when he told this story, he said it this way. Jacob looked at Rachel and he said, well, hello, darling, you're coming home with me. Um, I'm not sure that's the wisest way to approach uh, the woman of your dreams, fellas, but, but he saw her and he apparently instantly loved her and he jumped in and he moved this stone off of the well that usually took several men to move. He was empowered by love and by faith in God. God's already keeping his promises. Here's Rachel. Um, and so he meets with Laban, um, and Laban says, well, I don't want you to serve me without anything. And Jacob says, well, we're here. How about I serve you uh, for seven years for your youngest daughter, Rachel? And uh, he does. And as you remember the story, and I invite you to go back and read all these chapters uh, we're just not going to have time to do it, but it's, it's like watching a movie. Um, he serves for seven years, and the Bible says that because of his love for Rachel, the seven years seemed like nothing to him. At the end of the seven years, he says to Laban, give me my wife. Laban says, okay, let's, let's have a wedding. They have a wedding, and somehow... Uh, whether it was only because of a veil or because Jacob had a little too much to drink at the wedding uh, ceremony and uh, reception, he wakes up the next morning and finds out it's not Rachel, it's Leah, her older sister. He's been deceived. The deceiver has been deceived. He comes to, to Laban and says, what have you done? And Laban says, well... In, the, in, in our country, uh, we always let the older, we want the older to be married before the younger. So uh, if you'll work for me another seven years, I'll give you the younger as well. So as the tradition was, there's a, it's a bridal, uh, it's a wedding week. And so at the end of that week, Laban at least goes ahead and gives him Rachel, but then Jacob serves for another seven years. And in that time period... They have all kinds of children because he also uh, acquired uh, Leah and Rachel's servant girls as his wives as well. And so he ends up with 11 children. And uh, then he's ready to leave. And again, Laban says, well, sure, you can leave. Um, but with what will you leave as far as flocks and, and, and herds? Um, Jacob says, here's what we'll do. Um, I will keep all the, the spotted and striped um, goats and sheep, and you can keep all the ones that are black or white, solid colored. The solid colored animals were the ones that were deemed most valuable. If they were spotted or striped or had any streaks of color on them, they were not as valuable, and Jacob was just saying, I'll take all of those. Laban said, sure, that sounds good, and he immediately gets his son to gather all the spotted and striped and mottled uh, sheep and goats and take them three days away so that when Jacob comes to the flock, there's nothing for him to take. And so Jacob ends up staying uh, for a while, 
and and continuing to do what he's been doing. He's breeding these um, sheep and goats. And he had a dream in which God told him, I will multiply all of the spotted and striped and mottled animals so that you will leave here with plenty. And so, trusting that, Jacob went about his work as a shepherd. Um, and he bred these animals until he had plenty. And at the end of, that was about six years, at the end of 20 years, now Jacob, with his huge family and all of these animals and servants and wealth, is ready to go back to the land of his father. And so he leaves. And it's on that trip that this story happens. So, um, I kind of give you that overview to, to remind you that that 20 years was very difficult. It didn't always seem, and it may have seemed at first when Rachel showed up, oh, God's answering these promises. But then, wait, that's not Rachel, that's Leah. And then I've got to work another seven years for Rachel. And then all of these animals and sheep and Laban keeps deceiving me and tricking me all of these relational conflicts going on, and now to go back to my father's land, I've got to meet Esau, who has promised to kill me. It doesn't seem exactly like everything's going his way and that God is answering his promises. But God's at work in another way in that 20 years. And so, honestly, for the sake of time (coughs) and for the sake of coughing, I just want to share with you some of the observations that I made after marinating in this story all week long, which I have thoroughly enjoyed, and it's been very personally encouraging and uh, beneficial to me to read this, to see, okay, God, I now that makes a lot of sense of what you've been doing in my life, in my story. And so here's some observations that I'd like to make based on this story. Um, And then, for those who like to take notes, be encouraged. At at noon, my so what email is going out, and all of this will be in it, almost verbatim. In fact, I'm going to read a lot of this, so forgive me, because I want to make sure that I've said the thoughts that have come to mind. So, some observations from this story. As I've said, one way to picture the process of growth in our relationship with God is wrestling. God wrestles with us to remove our self-reliance and replace it with rest and reliance, rest in and reliance upon him. We wrestle with God, seeking to understand what it means to trust him with all that we are and to believe all that he has promised his people. That's what Jacob was doing. God's aim is to deepen our dependence upon him. So he kindly shows us our weakness. And he shows us our need through the exposure of our sin and the experience of physical or relational pain. It's in this wrestling match with God that we receive crippling grace and we respond with limping faith. And so when when God wrestled Jacob... He wrestled him 
in a couple of ways, at least. He wrestled Jacob through making Jacob face his failure. Well, why do I say that? Because as I said earlier, Jacob, the deceiver, was deceived in several ways in this 20 years by Laban. It's so obvious as you read the story, the ironic twist here. Here's the ultimate deceiver being ultimately deceived in ways that hurt the love of his life, his, his work, his, his livelihood, what he does for his calling as a shepherd. Jacob the deceiver was deceived. And you wonder, don't you, how, what he must have been thinking in that moment. In, in facing the deceit that he received, he, he had to have faced the deceit that he had given. And it wasn't just any old kind of deceit. It was the deceit that had to do with the older and the younger, which was the issue with him, remember? He's the younger brother, and he cheated his older brother out of his birthright and his blessing. Well, in one of the deceptions that Laban did with the Leah-Rachel scenario, it was all about the older getting the blessing of marriage first. Laban says, well, that's not how we do it here. Sorry, the older is first, and then the younger. And so I just imagine Jacob thinking, wait a second, this sounds way too familiar to me. And it's not, I'm not saying that God is, this is not karma, and this is not God saying, ugh, take that. But I think, I think the Lord uses these things to help Jacob look in a mirror and say, wow, this is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of the sin that I most struggle with. This is what it means to be deceived and to see the older and younger play out. And then to know that God has still promised to bless him and to be with him. And how I wonder if that might have melted his heart to think, oh God, this is what it feels like to be on the receiving end of my sin, and yet you, you love me and you've promised to be with me and take care of me. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever experienced something? Has God ever led you into an experience where you came face to face with your own failure and yet were amazed at his grace in your life? But he also wrestled with Jacob by helping Jacob face his fear. Esau, the cheated brother, had promised to kill this cheater. And now, in order for Jacob to receive the promise of the land that God had given him, he's going to have to come face to face with his greatest fear. God wrestles with us in those ways. Another observation. Augustine once said, that the touch of the Lord is the hand of the Lord, chastising and giving life. So that touch on the hip socket was uh, both chastisement and a gift of life to Jacob. This is what I wrote. God our Father wrestles us, uh, 
like a father wrestles his little ones. Of course, the dad could pin them at any moment, but he lets them wrestle him as if they are equals. He lets us wrestle him as if we're equals. He wants them to know his strength, and he wants to grow their strength. And though we may grow weary of God's grip on us, our Father's wrestling is meant to wrestle us into his rest until we know that his strength, uh, until we know his strength and we know our weakness without him. That really makes sense of what God has done in my life, even in the last five years. He's been wrestling me, not because he wants to hurt me, but because he wants me to know how weak I am, how strong he is, and he wants to strengthen me. Assuming, as some do, that the right hand is typically stronger than the left, John Calvin once said this. He said, we may truly and properly say that God fights against us with his left hand, his weaker hand, and he fights for us with his right hand, his stronger hand. In other words, God uses his weaker hand to wrestle us with exposure of sin and experiences of suffering. But his stronger hand is always there supporting us and strengthening us through the exposure of our sin and the experience of our suffering. And as you watch Jacob over this 20 years, you see that he becomes more and more confident that God is keeping his promises to him. His family is expanding. God provided for him and protected him from Laban's deceit about the flocks. Yes, God is allowing hard things into his life. But God is also strengthening Jacob's grip on him through these things. A third observation. Both uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones and Sinclair Ferguson both made this same point in different ways. This is the gist of it. The real danger Jacob faced was not Esau and the loss of his wives and children and possessions. The real danger Jacob faced was not the loss of blessings, plural. The real danger was the loss of the blessing, singular. The blessing of having God and being God's. With the blessing of knowing God and being his comes everything, every other blessing that God promises his children. And that night, before the wrestling, Jacob let everything else go. His wives, his children, his flocks, his servants. He let them all go across the Jabbok. But in that wrestling match, he would not let go of God. That's what God wanted for Jacob. He wanted him to come to a place where, though thankful for the blessings the one blessing of having God and being God's, he would never want to let go of. A fourth observation. 
Jacob faced this fear of Esau and the potential loss of all the blessings God had given him to that point. And his fear was legitimate. Esau had said he would kill him, and now Esau and 400 men were on their way. What Jacob feared was real, and it was on its way. So it's not like he's getting all anxious about something that's probably not going to happen. It seems like it's coming. But he prayed. He prayed. I've, I've got to turn to this. Genesis 32. This kind of shows where God had, where God's wrestling with Jacob had gotten him to this point. This is before the wrestling match. Jacob prayed as he faced the fear of his brother. Jacob said, and someone said that this is the longest prayer in Genesis. Listen to the difference in this deceiver's heart. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. For multitude. Wow. Look where his heart had come in 20 years. He's crying out to God. And he's honest. I fear him, God. I fear him. But I'm relying on your promise. You promised. And, you, and I'm not worthy of all the deeds of steadfast love that you've shown me. I'm nothing, God. But you've said that you were going to bless this nothing and take care of this nothing. I'm afraid. Help me. Wow. John Calvin said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. And this was Jacob exercising his faith, his trust in God and his promises. A fifth observation. And this one is the sweetest. Sinclair Ferguson beautifully reminds us that on another dark night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wrestled with his father. Two equals, two true equals, wrestling. Three times Jesus wrestled in prayer, please take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, but yours be done. And then Jesus was wounded by whips, beatings, a crown of thorns, nails in his hands and feet, a spear in his side. In all of this, Jesus was in essence saying to his father, I will not let you go, Father. I will not let you go until you bless them. Until you bless them. And he became a curse so that we could have his blessing. 
This is the God who promises to do you good. Whenever he shows you your sins or you face your fears, this is the God who promises to do you good. The one who wrestled with his father so that you could have his blessing. A couple of other observations. Well, I'm going to skip that one, but I'm going to come back to... I'll come to this one. I wondered this week as I, as I read this, what should Jacob's story and Israel's story, because uh, this story was put in Genesis so that Israel would read it later and realize, ah, Israel means God fights, <laughs> God wrestles, and we, as Jacob's people, we, Israel, are going to go through the same wrestling with our God What is he up to in our lives? But what should Jacob's story and Israel's story tell us about our church's story? In all of our failings and faithfulness, and we've had both as a church, failings and faithfulness, failings and faithfulness, just like Jacob, just like Israel. In all of our failings and faithfulness, God is at work in us as a church. He's wrestling with us as we wrestle with him. All of our failings and faithfulness, all the ups and downs of Mountain Fellowship over the last 12 years are not wasted. Something's going on. And he's up to something in us and with us. Our weaknesses are not signs that he's against us. No. He's exposing our weaknesses because he's so intensely for us that he wants us to let go of good blessings and refuse to let go of the best blessing, which is him, just him. What good blessings are we as a church willing to do without if we know we have him? What are we willing to do without? I trust we're not ever going to be willing to be without God as he's revealed himself in his word. We will not let go because that's how he will bless us. But we can let go of many of the other blessings that he might choose to give us. We can let go of the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Um, Those are great blessings that God may choose to give us, but they're good, but they're not the best. We can have him, whether we have high attendance, lots of uh, a building of our own, and lots of cash. We can let go of having the best fill in the blank the best preaching, the best music, the best children's ministry, the best youth ministry, the best service ministry, the best. All those would be good blessings, but we cannot have those and still have the best blessing. And so I wonder if perhaps all of our struggles and ups and downs over the years are to bring us to a place 
where our profound weakness and desperate dependence would tighten our corporate grip on him so that together we say, we will not let you go, God, until you bless us with you. No matter what you take away from us, God, we're not going to let go of you. And so we long to be a people who can say to each other and to everyone else on this mountain what Jacob said, we have seen God face to face and yet our lives have been delivered. We've seen God face to face and it should have crushed us and yet it gave us life because he gave us life. One last observation. Understanding that the Christian life is one of continually grappling with God and who he is as he wrestles us into resting in him, if that's what the Christian life is like, and it, I submit to you it is, then it should humble us and make us the most patient people in the world, the most patient people on this mountain. Are any of us fully trusting God? Are any of us fully and finally done with the sin that wars against us? Listen, to the degree that we think there is no sin in us warring against God, to the degree that we think there's nothing more in our hearts for God to pin down until it submits to him, to that degree we show that we don't understand our own hearts and we don't understand what God is up to. If we say we have no sin, John said, we deceive ourselves. Heidelberg question 114 says, in this life, even the holiest, even the holiest have only a small beginning of obedience. <coughs> Friends, if we recognize that as Paul says, the spirit is at war with our flesh, with our me first hearts, and that there's continuing this wrestling match that God is continually to rest, wrestle us into, uh, away from resisting him and into resting in him, then we'll look at others and we'll say, I- I'm going to be patient with you too because he's doing that in your life. What we tend to do with one another is we tend to look at each other as snapshots. I look at what's going on in your life right now and I go, They're not doing well with Jesus right now, are they? What this story shows us is that God looks at movies, (laughs) the whole movie. The one snapshot, if you took a snapshot of Jacob's life in that 20 years, you would not say that he was growing as a man of faith, particular snapshots. But if you look at the whole story, God says, Look at the amazing thing that I'm doing in this man called Jacob. And so, friends, we need to look at each other that way and look at our own lives that way. Don't judge what God is doing by a single snapshot of your life or someone else's life. Pull back and see the whole picture. So, Samara's post of pictures with my son Micah and her comment my whole heart for my whole life she didn't know what she was saying 
And you and I don't know what we're saying. Jacob didn't know what he was saying. We don't know what we're saying when we say, Jesus, my whole heart for my whole life is yours. We don't know what we're saying. But just as God promised Jacob, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. God knows what he's saying when through Jesus he said, my whole heart for my whole life for you. That's what this table tells us this morning. For Jacob's like us, God has promised to us through Jesus that he would give his whole heart for his whole life, which never ends, for us. Father, thank you for that good news. Help us to rejoice in it, to give you praise and thanks for it. You're so much better than we think you are. You're so good. Thank you, in Jesus' name.